Welcome to Into Theology. I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're continuing to work through John Calvin's The Institutes of Christian Religion. And we're in chapter 23, which is basically defending the, the doctrine of election predestination against those who might have objections and so on. And we're just having a conversation about this passage. Um, and we didn't pick a place to read, but... Um, Your fault. That's my fault. So let's just keep talking. And when we find a passage, we'll, we'll, we'll find a reading, but yeah, well, he's, uh, he's really, what he's really doing in 23 and uh, is, is really wrestling through the objections uh, to reprobation. Right. So kind of like what we were talking about in our previous podcast about this, you know, that Calvin seems to have a kind of doctrine of double predestination and, uh, and here, you know, where, where, Others, as we noted, like Vermeule and, and Heinrich Bullinger, don't go that far with double predestination as Calvin will. Um, he's, a, he's addressing the objections. Um, he's really kind of swinging at probably more at Lutherans, but um, you know, he's, he's trying to basically say, listen, like if election is a thing, reprobation has to be a thing too. And, it ha and, if, and if every, he's gonna argue in this that everything kind of boils down to God's will. So if God wills everything, that means he wills even to pass by, you know, those who aren't going to um, believe in him. And so it's still, reprobation is still an act of God's will. That's the cause of everything. So, but it's interesting. What I've noted here is he's less pressing home, like the logic of things than really he is just dealing with biblical texts, you know, like he spends quite a bit of time in Romans. Um, there's a number of texts in Proverbs that come up. And, uh, and so he doesn't, he doesn't kind of, doesn't strike me as being overly speculative here um, in a way that it could be. Um, he's even kind of pressing back against some of the speculation. He's basically like coming down on saying, hey, God wills it, then that's where we're at. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. I think you're exactly right in that. I, I think when I was originally reading Kelvin, I was like, ah, he's, he's like a little bit maybe too harsh or, or strong on some of this stuff. But this chapter really helped me to, to see, well, no, it's, it's not. It's not quite that. What he's trying to do is sort of vouchsafe God's uh, total ability to control of history. Yeah. And also, as you know, to be biblical. So, for example, on page 951, which is section four of chapter 23, he really, uh, when he cites Romans 9, 20, 21, that's kind of his thing. It's like, look, Paul says we can't really answer back to God on these things. Yeah. It's sort of beyond us. And so... Um, then right below that, that citation in the next paragraph, he says, for what stronger reason can be adduced than we are than, uh, than when we are bidden to ponder who God is? Like, so who is this God? He continues, for how could he who is the judge of the earth allow any iniquity? It's a reference to Genesis 18.25. And then he continues, if the execution of judgment properly belongs to God's nature, then by nature he loves righteousness and abhors unrighteousness. Okay, so that's just what the Bible says. Yep. Accordingly, the apostle did not look for loopholes of escape as if he were embarrassed in his argument, and this would be Romans 9, the argument he's talking about, but showed that the reason of divine righteousness is higher than men's standard can measure or than men's slender wit can comprehend. The word comprehend is kind of helpful there too. It's, it might be a technical word, meaning that you can't actually fully understand something in, in contrast to apprehend which means you can yeah. know something truly, just not fully. 
And he says exactly the same sort of thing on 953. He says, now consider the narrowness of your mind, whether it can grasp what God has decreed with himself. You know, yeah. so he's, you know, you can't comprehend this because your mind is just way too narrow to, to at, at all understand what's happening. Yeah. And this is when he, I mean, even on page 955, we, we looked at this already, or I'm sorry, 957, a uh, section nine, uh, somewhere near the middle of that paragraph, he says, but we can deny that they are duly excused because the ordinance of God by which they complain that they are destined to destruction has its own equity unknown indeed to us, indeed to us, but very sure. Um, from this, we conclude that the ills they bear are all inflicted upon them by God's most righteous judgment. Um, actually, I'll read the next sentence too. Accordingly, we teach that they act perversely who, to seek out the source of their condemnation, turn their gaze upon the hidden sanctuary of God's plan and wink at the corruption of nature from which it really springs, namely themselves. And so it's interesting. He's saying, look, we already know the, the immediate kind of internal cause is you. It's us. It's our corrupt nature. It's our sin. That's why we are not saved. But then he also says, well, the scripture says that God is in control of everything. And so insofar as he's over and over reasserting that God is the kind of single cause of all things, he's doing it because the Bible says so. But he's never, as you noted, speculative. His point is, I actually have no idea <laughs> how this works out per se. Yep. But what I do know is that the Bible says God is just and I believe it. And therefore there must be a hidden equity in the mind of God that is, as he noted earlier, beyond uh, comprehension or yep. beyond our ability to grasp. And so this kind of goes back to, um, I think the, an older view of God's nature or not really older. It's just a traditional view where, God's nature is ineffable. You, you actually can't comprehend it. Like you can't see the depths of it. Yeah. How much more the decree of the simple God that whatever he ordains is right. We just may not fully grasp or understand it. Like maybe just a simple example. Like if you see something bad happen, all you can see is the, the singular thing that's present to your senses. You don't know the thousands and millions of tiny little causes and events all around it that proceed, that follow, that are above, that are below the internal life of someone involved, their emotions, their feelings, that the internal logic of their experience, the, their regrets, their successes. We're sort of like this uh, infinite plenitude of being. Yeah. And, you know, this is going back to someone, Gregory of Nyssa will say like, you can't even know yourself. <laughs> like we're so confusing where the Bible will say that, you know, the heart is uh, deceptive, who can know it kind of thing. I think, right? Is that Jeremiah yeah. 17? Yeah. Um, so I actually think if we can't know ourselves even, then how much less can we fully know God? So you can know right. God truly. I'm not saying that, but you can't know God fully because he's, I mean, as Solomon will say, heaven and earth can't contain him, but I'm contained on a single chair right now. <laughs> so right. like, how can I comprehend something that is so beyond what I am? In well, fact, that's even, on, even on that score to a degree, you know, I was, I was reading in, um, I can't remember if it was Richard Muller or Paul Helm on this, where they're talking about like there's an unevenness in the in Calvin's doctrine of double predestination, where like election is something that's knowable through Christ, right? So there's like this kind of mediation that comes through through Christ, um, but reprobation has no connection uh, to Christ at all, right? So the ele election happens through him of those who are going to be part of his body, those who are passed over. Um, that has no kind of direct reference to that. 
And so therein lies why we can't really have speculation um, because it's, there's, there's none of that mediation there. And so he kind of puts the kind of weight on the election side of things where we can have this mediated knowledge. And then the reprobation stuff is where he's gonna say, hey, like I can't really go too far with this because I don't have that mediated knowledge that's gonna help me. That's incredibly helpful because I mean, Christ is obviously the, the created medium by which we can come to know the uncreated word. Yeah. Can you actually, there's something you might, if you go to page 970, section five there, that first paragraph, this might be, maybe you want to read this paragraph because it, it says basically what you just noted. We, we have a mere, like, maybe just read it, but like key on, on the mere idea, Christ is our mere for election. So we can fully understand it because he yeah, is. It's amazing how often mirror kind of appears both in Calvin and hmm. um, so are you talking about right at the very set, beginning of section five there? Yeah, I mean, you could probably start anywhere, but really um, from the top or maybe even just above where Ephesians 1, 4 is cited. Okay, I'll just read the whole thing. I mean, why not? Yeah. Um, so we're on page 970. Um, so uh, the, the heading that's given here is election is to be understood and recognized in Christ alone. Uh, so first, if we seek God's fatherly mercy and kindly heart, we should turn our eyes to Christ on whom alone God's spirit rests. If we seek salvation, life, and the immortality of the heavenly kingdom, then there is no other to whom we may flee, seeing that he alone is the fountain of life, the anchor of salvation, and the heir of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the purpose of election but that we, adopted as sons by our heavenly father, may obtain salvation and immortality by his favor? No matter how much you toss it about and mull it over, you will discover that its final bounds will extend no farther. Accordingly, those whom God has adopted as his sons are said to have been chosen not in themselves, but in his Christ. For unless we could love them in him, he could not honor them with the inheritance of his kingdom if they had not previously become partakers of him. But if we've been chosen in him, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves, and not even in God the Father, if we conceive him as severed from his son. Christ, then, is the mirror wherein we must, and without self-deception may, contemplate our own election. For since it is into his body, the Father has destined those who to be engrafted, whom he has willed from eternity to be his own, that he may hold his sons, all whom he acknowledges, to be among his members." We have a sufficiently clear and firm testimony that we have been inscribed in the book of life if we are in communion with Christ. That's an awesome statement of assurance, too. You know, that like, how do you, how do you know that you have this assurance? How do, you, how do you know that you have your name written in the, in, the, in the Lamb's book of life? It's because of your communion with Christ. It's not something that you're to look to yourself for. You actually right. look at yourself when you're looking at Christ because Christ is actually the mirror. And he says, it's not, it's not weird that we do this. We're actually supposed to do it. Yeah. And you made that connection before. We don't really contemplate our reprobation, but here we're meant to contemplate our election. Yeah. Meaning there is that sort of mediated, there's the medium meant to reveal us this truth. And that medium in this case is, is Christ. And insofar as he is the elect one, whatever you want to say, my, this is my son whom I've chosen or whatever. Um, Careful, you're sounding Bardian. Yeah, we discussed that. I haven't really read Bart, so that's that's hard, but uh, <laughs> sure. But insofar as he is kind of the, uh, you know, so he becomes human and uh, he is, he's the he's the son by nature. We actually become sons by grace and adoption. Yeah. And so there is like a, a true mirror. It's an, an analogy. 
And insofar as we're elected in him, we can kind of see and, ex- and like we look to Christ to see what did he experience according to his humanity. And yeah. that's what we ought to also expect to experience in terms of our sonship and adoption and grace and inheritance and all that kind of stuff. So I, I thought that was just a fact. I mean, when you were talking this, my, my brain yeah. went to this passage. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting, though, because like, you know, this unevenness between election and reprobation and then, you know, uh, so to know to know election is to know it through mediation of the person of Christ, and uh, and then he's going to kind of locate everything in terms of like God's will, right? So he has like there's there seems like to be this tension in him. I think we've talked about this before, with like whether or not you know how indebted he is to the late medieval nominalist tradition, voluntarism, and things like that. Um, because he's going to say certain things like, okay, when it comes to these matters, God's will is the ultimate cause of everything. And, uh, and so when we ask, you know, when we're starting to inquire into like how or why or whatever, the ultimate answer is basically, well, it's God's will. And we can't inquire beyond that. And right kind of in the beginning of our reading, it's on 949 in section two there, Kind of like he's talking about God, whether God is a, is a tyrant or not. And he's arguing against, against that, obviously. And then he says, um, let's see, where's a good spot? So for, uh, where it says, for his will is and rightly ought to be the cause of all things that are. For if it has any cause, something must precede it to which it is, as it were, bound. This is unlawful to imagine. For God's will is so much the highest rule of righteousness that whatever he wills, by the very fact that he wills it, must be considered righteous. <laughs> that sounds voluntarist. <laughs> yeah, it sounds voluntaristic, right? When therefore one asks why God has so done, we must reply because he has willed it. But if you proceed <laughs> further to ask why he so willed, you are seeking something greater and higher than God's will, which cannot be found. So I'm like, okay, so it, it sounds like voluntarism that within the faculties of the soul or within God, right, the highest is the will. But if you're an intellectualist, my thought is, okay, isn't there something higher, you know, like that's called reason, you know, or intellect or mind. So like when God wills something, doesn't he have a reason for doing it? It's grounded in his nature, obviously. But like, if that's the case, then the will really isn't the highest thing to which we can appeal to and can't go beyond because then it would be God's mind or intellect wherein he has reasons to do things. And if he has reasons to do it, isn't isn't it reasonable on our part to want to know what those reasons are? Uh, it sounds kind of convoluted to say, but I just thought, oh, I, I just didn't feel very satisfied by what he said there. I thought, no, God has reasons for it, and can we inquire into them? And and has he revealed them anywhere? You know. And it is interesting that he'll kind of carry on his argument and sort of balance what appears to be like the sort of absolute will idea with, well, no, God does justice. <laughs> Like he is just by nature. Yeah. It's just that there's a hidden equity in God that we can't discern. Yeah. And I mean, he even like when you kind of keep going in the end of that section, if you flip over to page 950, he, it's almost like he's aware that he's kind of sounding like a nominalist or a voluntarist or whatever. And so he says on the top there, that first kind of paragraph on 950, he says, We do not advocate the fiction of absolute might because this is profane. It ought rightly to be hateful to us. We fancy no lawless God who is a law unto himself. So it's like, uh, he's like, I'm, I realize I sound like a voluntarist here, but hey, I don't want to go as far as like crazy, you know, Scotus or Occam or whatever. 
uh, and make it seem like God can like have laws that he's free to bend, um, Mm -hmm. you know, according to, you know, his prerogative or something, his will. Um, So it's like, it's like, there's like a kind of tension here in him, you know, um, for what it's worth. It's interesting when he talks about God's will on page 956, he doesn't actually love the distinction of will between God's permissive will and, and um, I guess another set of will. And yet later he'll talk about how, in fact, actually God reveals himself in, in a, in a created accommodation to us with a multiplicity of will so that we can kind of come to understand it. It's kind of like an anthropomorphism as it will, as it were. Yeah. Um, so he has that. But then I actually find it interesting that when he goes to page 957 and, and we're talking about the cause once again of reprobation, the la- um, I think the second to the last sentence there, of section eight, it says, accordingly, we should contemplate the evident cause of our condemnation, where? In the corrupt nature of humanity. So remember to contemplate election in Christ, but then now we're going to contemplate reprobation in us, yeah. not God. Um, which is closer to us rather than seek a hidden and utterly incomprehensible cause in God's predestination and incomprehensible. Like that's one of those words you might hear and just not think about. It literally means you cannot comprehend it. Like it is not able to be comprehended. So don't even try. It's not even possible to to, to plausibly think through it. Um, And then he continues and let us not be ashamed to submit our understanding to God's boundless wisdom, so far as to yield before its many secrets. For those things which it is neither given nor lawful to know, ignorance is learned or learned. Amazing. The craving to know a kind of madness. <laughs> and so I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a there's a thing where uh, Calvin actually agrees a bit more with Vermeule than I thought, in that Vermeule's like, you shouldn't really think of reprobation because we have no idea. Now, Vermeule is stronger. He's not going to mess around like Calvin does with all these polemics back and forth. But but Calvin does it, I guess, maybe because of his unique situation. And yet he's saying the same thing at the end of the day. Like, yeah, double predestination is true. I don't understand it. God is just. It's hidden. Here's the thing you should focus on, though. It's actually, when you contemplate the cause of reparation, it's going to be human sin. Yeah. When you contemplate the cause of election, it's going to be Christ. At least when you're thinking in terms of cause, like he's going to say it's ultimately God's will. But then when we're looking to the source of cause of our own particular reprobation, especially if that that figmented person of like, you know, he discusses of uh, somebody who's like, oh, I'm I'm reprobated, but it's not me. It's God that's done it. He's like, no, no, it's you. Like you should turn to yourself for your own problems, (laughs) you know, before you start turning to others. Yeah. But I mean, like, again, though, like it seems like then. So he's he's pretty he's pretty like grounded in Paul in Romans nine, right? So on page 948, that whole kind of like opening section is just all him discussing Romans nine. He's doing it with the aid of Augustine, who he sees to be a double predestinarian. Um, oh, so he's, he's being, he's being pretty exegetical. Before and, you carry on, can I read you one sentence yeah, uh, before. on page 96? I prefer to refute their cavell with Augustine's words rather than mine. <laughs> Sorry, but go on, go on. Yeah, no, he, I mean, he's, he pulls from he pulls from Augustine like everywhere in this this whole reading. Right. And uh, and then he's basically saying, OK, here it is. I mean, I mean, he quotes from uh, where is that quote from Proverbs uh, two, which is just like, wow, that's so I, I he quotes it in the Vulgate on page 954. 
So I, I looked it up and uh, it is what it says even in our modern translations, right? On 954, um, he says, therefore, let us see how this difficulty ought duly to be resolved. First of all, what Solomon says ought to be agreed upon among everyone. God has made everything for himself, even the wicked for the evil day. Yeah. I mean, you just sit and think about that text for a second. You're like God made wicked people even for the evil day. And he's like, yeah, it sounds like double predestination to me, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and then, but then when he gets to like the kind of philosophical end of things, he doesn't, he's not, it doesn't seem like he's arguing, oh, doctrine of election, therefore reprobation. He just seems to see it in the text. And then when he's like, okay, if we start to speculate about this, we really can't. You know, so he's he's really saying, okay, here's what's been revealed. We see it clearly. When we go, when we want to try to go beyond it, we have to recognize that God has this inscrutable, incomprehensible, but fundamentally just nature. That's what we kind of like locate ourselves in. It's interesting too. Like when you get page nine sixty, he's kind of doing this polemics, but then he's trying to get to what what is election really about? What is all this stuff really about? Yeah, and um. He actually talks about the intent in scripture, by the way, which is an interesting point because he's not talking about the intent of a particular author. He says there's a mind to scripture yeah, and it's a mystery, but he says here uh, in section 12, second paragraph near the top, but closer to the middle, rather, uh, I'll put it this way, for scripture does not speak of predestination with the intent to rouse us to boldness that we may try with impious rashness, rashness to search out God's unattainable secrets. Rather, its intent is that, humbled and cast down, yep. we may learn to tremble at his, at his judgment and esteem his mercy. It is this mark that believers aim. And so I think he is dealing with this polemical stuff and, and goes into depth, not because he wants to per se, but because he feels like he needs to stretch out and kind of battle all of these attackers so that maybe he can get to one of the, one of the major points, which is election is about humility. Yeah. Um, we, we don't know reprobation, so you can't just say, I'm better than you, you're reprobated. You have no idea. It's just totally outside of your ability to comprehend. But no. what you can know is that grace is free. That's one thing we didn't mention. You actually mentioned this earlier too, but it's, it's free precisely because it's predestined. No. Because it would be bound to something you have done, no matter what it is, if it were not predestined. Like if, no. if, if God's choice to, to save you is based on anything that you did, even if it's imperfect righteousness that God covenantally agrees to honor, then it's somehow bound to something that you do, but it's actually free and therefore unmerited. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's pretty standard, I guess, but. Um, his, language, his language is hilarious too. Like you just have to chuckle, you know, like just above where you read in the previous paragraph there, he says, uh, obviously they're not completely lying for there are many swine that pollute the doctrine of predestination with their foul blasphemies. <laughs> and then he says it again, like right after where you read, uh, where I, I swear I just saw him use the word swine again. <laughs> That's like so funny. Oh yeah, but the foul grunting of these swine is duly silenced by God uh, by Paul. <laughs> My dad used to use uh, swine as an insult for people. You swine! I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I get, I'm gonna follow Calvin. And start, yeah. I'm going to reintroduce that into my life. What would Calvin do? We call call the opinion. Well, if you've ever heard pigs together, they're loud and noisy yeah, and gross, grunting. right? So, but but actually, this this goes back to, to Romans nine, I think twenty one twenty two. Like, who are you, O man, to answer God? Yeah, which he quotes a few times. He here. quotes, uh, yeah, at least once that I saw. And then that I remember, 
But he, oh yeah, you're right. The second time actually, the prior page. He's also quoting Romans uh, eleven at one point, or alluding to it, where it's like, um, just this kind of it kind of ends in worship and praise of God. I think eleven thirty six, all things are from Him, through Him, and for Him. Yeah. So, you know, I think when you when you talk about this, I think um, wait, well, here it is. So eleven, so Romans eleven thirty three and following. I'll just I'll read it from the Bible. He looks to it earlier. I just can't remember where. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I mean, this is John Calvin's logic, right? Yeah. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? I mean, God, if you think about the Bible, Paul says his judgments are unsearchable and his ways inscrutable. That doesn't mean that they're scrutable or searchable. <laughs> it means they're not, <laughs> right? You actually don't know. So who are you, old person, to then challenge God? If you do, you're basically, a, it's like a swine challenging us. Like you're like <laughs> running away. I don't have to tell you why yeah. Why I'm going to work today or whatever. Um, this section helped me a lot. I, 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 um, I didn't, I think the prior sections made me kind of feel, the chapters made me feel like he's a little bit too harsh on this stuff. But reading this was like, oh, everything clicked. I get it now. Yep. He is merely trying to vouchsafe the absolute um, power of God as cause of all things, according to scripture. He's not trying just to be a meanie head and say, you're a reprobated, ha, ha, ha. Like, that's not even what he wants to get at. No. He, he gets there merely because the Bible says so. And he always wants to say, I have, I have no idea. There's a hidden equity. No. I don't know. Don't, don't look at me. <laughs> I'm just no. like you. I know nothing. On, uh, I can't comprehend it. Yeah. But what I can know in the next chapter we learn is that if you you can comprehend Christ and know your election. Yeah. And he's and he's gonna he's gonna go in, in 24 and, and say, okay, like God, God, God actively calls um in election those that are his children, and uh those who are the reprobate really call that upon themselves in a weird way. It's like there's like these two different sorts of calls where you know, God actively calls us to be incorporated into Christ, but then those who are who are wicked call their own wickedness upon themselves, by which then they are reprobated. Mm -hmm. Because because of that equity in God, right? God loves which that which is righteous and calls it to Himself, and that which is wicked He hates. And but those but those who but those who are the wicked are are wicked because that's their own choice to be as such, right? So. Yeah, it's it's interesting how he kind of work. It all kind of works out, you know. As you kind of keep reading, you're like, "What the heck's he talking about here?" Oh, okay. Yep. And it's funny how he gets with his language too about Augustine. You know, he, how many times in twenty four that holy man says this? <laughs> you know, it's like. Yeah, like it's almost like. You know, it's almost like if it, if he because Augustine's a common authority, he's relishing inciting Augustine because he's like, yep. "What are you gonna do about it?" <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. Augustine. Yeah. Um, we all agree with him. Well, that's helpful. I think next time we can maybe uh, just shortly touch chapter 24 and then camp out on 25, which is the last chapter of book three. It's on the resurrection. I'm really excited for that. Oh, that's gonna be awesome. Um, that, I, I, I didn't read it yet, but I just kind of looked over it, like scanned it and it looks, looks cool. And then uh, after next week, we're going to be into book four and I, I'm actually way more excited about book four. Now I'm glad we delayed for so long. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about the sacraments, bapt, uh, so baptism, Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about government, all sorts of things that are highly controversial. So it'll be, I think it'll be interesting. I'm excited. I mean, I've, I've read 
you know, little bits of it before of this uh, book four, but I'm excited to kind of go through it systematically and yeah. and talk through it. I think we'll be surprised at a lot of a lot of what is uh, reformed Calvinism and what yeah. what we assume it is, you know, <laughs> in contrast to that. Yeah. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>